A very good morning to my brothers and sisters in Christ, also to the visiting brethren that have joined us for this morning, and especially also to the friends and the guests that have joined us. We thank you for taking time to worship with us this morning, uh, to worship our great God. This morning, I've chosen to speak on the topic of vain religion. You know, in the world today, sometimes the whether a religion is correct or is it vain is a bit hard to tell. Sometimes it's quite indistinguishable. For instance, we see that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he spoke of false apostles who masquerade as apostles of Christ and how Satan's ministers who masquerade as ministers of righteousness. You can't really tell the two apart. And in the parable of the wheat and tares, Jesus also spoke about how tares, which are the bad crops, were sown among the wheat, which are the desirable crops. And in fact, the wheat and the tares look alike to each other. That's why we see that the, the master told the servants to wait until the harvest before separating them. Because in the process of trying to weed out the, the tares, you might actually take out the wheat's review. This picture shows you how alike they are. The top one will be the wheat, the bottom one will be the tares. And you can understand why it's so difficult to differentiate them. And so that is why in the world today, sometimes we don't really know who are true Christians and who are in pretense. In fact, Jesus also warned that on Judgment Day, there will be many who consider themselves as the wheat, those who consider themselves as the minister of righteousness, only to be surprised to learn that they have been practicing vain religion all along. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23, Not everyone that says unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. And on the day of judgment, many will say, Lord, have we not done many things in your name? Have we not prophesied in your name, done many good works, and cast out demons in your name? But Jesus will tell them, I never knew you, depart from me, ye that work iniquity. So we see that, indeed, very religion and true religion can be quite indistinguishable in this world today. In fact, I remember that when I was studying in the Bible College, my instructor told us that there will be three wonders that we will see in heaven. The first wonder is that those we expect to see there will not be there. The second wonder is that those we do not expect to see there, yet we see them there. And the third wonder is that I will wonder whether I will be there. Okay. Of course, this is said in a tongue-in-cheek manner, but indeed, there will be a lot of surprises on Judgment Day, won't it? People will think that, oh, they seem to be very faithful, we thought that they will be there, but you are not there. But people, we don't think much of them, yet we will see them there. Now, before we go further in talking about what is vain religion and what, uh, what are the things that constitute vain religion, let's first understand what is vain religion. The word vain in the English language means something that is useless, of no purpose. So vain religious means that something, a religion, that results in nothing. It's done in vain. It's done in futility. There is nothing to be gained out of it. So when we're talking about vain religion, we're talking about a religion that has no benefit, that has no positive outcome. So in this morning's lesson, we shall consider three things that constitute vain religion, namely deviant doctrine, fruitless faith, and pretended piety. And then we want to discuss what are the repercussions, what is wrong with engaging in these practices. Well, let's first look at the first characteristic of vain religion, that of deviant doctrine. In Mark chapter 7, verse 7, Jesus says to the scribes and Pharisees, Howbeit 
Howbeit in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. So notice that Jesus said that if we do the doctrines, if we do the commandments of men, then the worship will be in vain. Deviant doctrine makes our religion vain. But you might wonder, what is deviant doctrine? Simply put, deviant doctrine is doctrine that departs from God's word. Anything that is not accordance to God's word is a deviant doctrine. The word deviant just means something that is uh, that deviates, that uh, separates from the norm, something that departs from the norm. So that is deviant. So when we talk about deviant doctrine, we are talking about things that are being taught that differs from the word of God. And Jesus gave two examples of what would constitute deviant doctrine. In condemning the scribes and Pharisees, Jesus spoke about their hypocrisy. In fact, he spoke about their traditions which they bind upon men. These are traditions that are not found in God's word. And so, these are matters that are inconsequential. It doesn't matter whether you do it or don't do it. It's, a manual, it's merely a matter of preference. But yet, they teach as doctrines. And what are some of these uh, traditions that they hold, that they impose upon others? For instance, in Mark chapter 7, verse 3 and verse 4, he says, for the Pharisees and all the Jews. So not just the Pharisees were doing it, but the Jews were doing it as well. What do they do? Except they wash their hands often, they eat not, holding the tradition of the elders. So they have a practice that before you eat, eat anything, you should wash your hands. Of course, today we also do that, right? It's good hygiene. Uh, you don't know what you touch. You don't want to touch your food and then get contaminated and then you have a stomach ache. But is it a doctrine? Is it a, something that is spiritually important that will affect your salvation? No, it doesn't. It's something that is good to do, but it won't affect our spiritual health. And verse 4, Jesus continues to say that when they come from the market, except they wash, they eat not. And many other things there be, which they have received to hold, as the washing of cups and pots, brazen vessels and of tables. So not only do they wash hands, uh, a lot of things they wash, uh, cups, pots and even vessels, uh, they wash it so thoroughly to prevent contamination. But they were so focused on the physical, but they were not careful about the spiritual instead. And so Jesus told them that this is futile because these are things that are of no consequence. What matters more is the heart. And in verse 15 of Mark chapter 7, Jesus says, There is nothing from outside a man that entering can defile him. So whatever you eat cannot spiritually defile you because what you eat is passed out. It doesn't defile us, contaminate us spiritually. But the things that come out from men, those are they that defile the man. So Jesus is referring to, for example, evil thoughts, evil words, evil actions. All these things can spiritually contaminate a man. But physical things cannot contaminate a man. So these are deviant doctrines because God has not imposed them on men, but these people bind these inconsequential doctrines upon others. On the other hand, there are commandments that are important. There are obligations that God imposed on us. For instance, the commandment to honour our father and our mother. Okay. But even though this is a commandment of God, we see that the Jews have neglected this commandment in order to obey their own tradition. So in Mark chapter 7, going on from verse 11 to verse 13, Jesus speaks about the practice of Korban. So what is Korban? So they are supposed to honour their parents. Okay, Today we also know that it's a filial thing to do. When our parents are old, we support them, we thank them for what they have done for us as we grow up. But for the Jews, they impose this tradition called Korban. So what it means is that they are supposed to give a proportion to God. 
okay? In fact, they give tithes to God. So instead of giving to their parents, they declare that this is korban. This is meant for God. So in the process, they, they absorb themselves of the responsibility to give to, to their parents because they say, I'm giving your portion to God. In fact, they're using their responsibility to take care of their parents, to use it, to cover it by saying that I'm giving to God. So one bird, hey, one stone kill two birds. Don't need to do both. I just do one and I count as both. So they are actually absorbing themselves of their responsibility. And so verse 12, Jesus says, You suffer him no more to do aught for his father or mother. These are things that they ought to do. But they say that just because you give it to God, now I'm saying that I don't need to give to my parents. And verse 13, Jesus gives the condemnation. He says that making the word of God of none effect through your a tradition which you have delivered, and many like things do ye. So through their traditions, they make God's word of no effect. So what they do is that the things that are not important, they make it so important. The things that are important, they make it of no effect. Okay? Or sometimes, as like we say, they like to major in the minor and they minor in the major. Important things don't do, not important things, they bind it on men. Today, can we be guilty of practicing such deviant doctrine? Well, if you ask the world today, how to become a Christian, how to be safe, different people will give you different ideas of how to be safe. But are all these ideas found in the Bible? Many times they are not. Because what they do is that they impose men's tradition. Take for instance, the practice of the sinner's prayer. Where did the sinner's prayer come from? We don't ever see a sinner's prayer in the Bible. In fact, the Bible tells us in John chapter 9 that God heareth not sinners. So a sinner's prayer is paradoxical in itself because God does not hear sinners. Our sins separate us from God. But where do these sinners' prayers come from? It's from uh, uh, evangelicals that come from the states that bring these teachings and practices in the 19th century. And it became so popular that it caught on. And so why today so many denominations practice it? Because it's something that's been done all along. It's part of the tradition and now it imposed as part of God's teaching. If we follow God's teaching, we want to look at what the Bible says, we can never find the sinner's prayer. On the other hand, when they practice the sinner's prayer, they are also neglecting God's commandments. Because what did God tell us to do? He commands to be baptized. Mark 16, 16, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. So simple, clear as that. 1 Peter 3, 21, Baptism doth now save us. Baptism saves us. Acts 10, 48, Peter commanded Cornelius and his household to be baptized. So we see that baptism is a commandment. He saves us. Jesus himself tells us to be baptized. But yet, why is it that so many people today say that you don't need to be baptized? They are making the word of God of no effect, just as what the Pharisees have done. So we see that this is what we call deviant doctrine, doctrine that separates, that departs from God's word. In fact, the Bible refers to such doctrines as doctrines of devils. The Bible talks about the time will come where people will give it to seducing spirits and doctrines of devils. Notice if the doctrine doesn't come from God, the doctrine must come from the devil. Even when men impose this doctrine, where do they get the source? It comes from the devil. Because the devil is the one that tries to change God's word. In the Garden of Eden, God told Adam and Eve that you shall not eat of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. What did Satan do? Satan changed the word. You shall not surely die. Jesus says, He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. Today the world changes it. He that believeth and is not baptized shall be saved. They change God's word and in the process they are doing what Satan would have them to do. 
In fact, let's consider what are some of these doctrines of devils that are mentioned in the Bible. And when the Bible talks about doctrines of devils, it's talking about doctrines that cannot be found in God's word. In verse 3, two verses down from 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he gives some examples. For example, forbidding to marry, the practice of celibacy. Some denominations today teach that the priesthood must be celibate. They have priests in the church and say, these priests must be celibate. They cannot marry, they cannot have relations, they cannot have children. Is that what is taught in the Bible? Well, Hebrews 13 verse 4 says, marriage is honorable in all and the bed undefiled. Notice the word in all. Ah. So God says, marriage is something that is honorable. In fact, God is the one who instituted marriage. So marriage is good for men. In fact, when God created Eve for Adam, He says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make him a help meet for him. So God created woman for men. God created marriage. But yet today people say that, oh, marriage is impure. If you want to serve God wholeheartedly, you cannot be married. That is not the case. God did not put such a requirement. In fact, it's quite interesting because you look at the denomination today, they say that priests cannot get married. But in the Old Testament times, are priests married? We know that the high, the high priest, first high priest was Aaron. Aaron passed on the high priest to his son, Eleazar. If Aaron is not married, where did he get his son? Eleazar. Eleazar, was he married? Well, we know that he has a son, Phinehas, whom the high priest passed on to. So the priests in the Old Testament, they were married. So where do people get the idea that priests cannot be married? We can't find it in the Bible. Again, it is putting man's commandments as God's doctrine. Another example of doctrine of devils, in the next part, it says to com commanding to abstain from meat. So today there are some who teach about abstinence. You cannot take meat. You cannot, you must take be vegetarian on certain days of the month. Is there what God commands? Looking down from the verse, the Bible says, which God had created to be received with thanksgiving of them which believe and know the truth. So notice God had created all things for people to eat. As long as you give thanks, you can partake of it. In the Old Testament, true, there are certain meats that are clean, there are certain food that is unclean. And God imposed these laws because the laws of hygiene weren't so uh, well known then. But today, the Old Testament law had been abolished and put to the cross. Today, Christians are no longer under the old law. Anything so long as we give thanks, we can eat. Well, of course, some of us do not like those exotic dishes. Ah. You know, sometimes people eat a lot of exotic food, ah, monkey brain, all this. Well, it's a matter of preference. Ah. It's not a sin, but if you don't like to eat, you can don't eat. Okay? So, there are certain things that it's a matter of preference, but we don't bind it as doctrines of God. So, when we practice deviant doctrine, essentially, we are practicing the doctrine of devils. And you might wonder, what is so wrong with practicing such doctrine? What harms can it cause? Well, Jesus told us that when we practice deviant doctrine, again going back to Mark chapter 7, he tells us it's an act of disobedience. Because in Mark chapter 7, verse 9, he said to them, Full well you reject the commandment of God that you may keep your own tradition. A lot of times, man's traditions override God's commandment. God commanded us in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 19, to sing with our heart. But today, when people put instruments into the church, they are changing God's commandment. In doing so, they rejected what God has commanded when God commands us to sing, but yet we introduce instruments of music. Such is an act of disobedience. And such is also an act of blindness. Because in a parallel account in Matthew chapter 15, uh, where Jesus again talks about them, how they put traditions of men to become doctrines of God, Jesus has this advice for, for the people. He says, let them alone. They are blind leaders of the blind. 
Why are they blind leaders? Because they do not really recognize or understand what the Bible teaches. They are using their own teachings to try to guide people. So in that sense, they are blind leaders of the blind. Well, today, do you want to follow a blind man? If you want to cross the road, you come over for, for, to the, towards the building, you probably have to cross a few traffic junctions, right? You have to come in through the, through the gate and uh, there's cars there. If you follow the blind man, what will happen? Uh? More likely than not, there will be an accident. Uh? You don't want to follow blind people because they do not know where they are going. They lead us into trouble. It's the same thing. Religiously speaking, if we follow the blind, the blind lead the blind, what will happen? Both will fall into the ditch. The outcome is the same. Those that teach the wrong things, they will suffer damnation of their souls. And those who follow them, ignorance is not an excuse. You also suffer the same consequences. So deviant doctrine has severe consequences because it leads to the damnation of the soul. In fact, they are disobeying God's will. And so brethren, the question is, are we guilty of deviant doctrine? Well, you may say that I don't follow false doctrine. But are we guilty of having itching ears? who want to hear what we like to hear. So today, people like to hear things that please them. Uh. Of course, we like to let people hear people tell us that we are doing well, we are okay with God, we are in a safe situation. People like the idea that one safe, always safe. But doesn't matter, you are baptized. You can do anything wrong, you will still be safe. Doesn't matter, you don't have to come to church every Lord's day. You just come once a year, you'll be okay. Doesn't matter what you practice, even homosexuality is okay, as long as you love one another. People like to hear that they are right with God. And Paul warns that the time will come where people will not endure sound doctrine. Sound doctrine is good for the soul, but it may not be good for our ears because we don't like to hear it. Huh? It hurts us. And they will hit to themselves teachers having itching ears. And Paul warns that they will turn their ears from the truth and be turned unto fables. Some people come to the church and say, the doctrine of the church is so boring. Huh? Every time I talk about the Bible, stories from the Bible, I want to hear exciting things. I want to hear conspiracy theories. But that is what itching ears does. So the problem is, how can we solve the problem of deviant doctrine? How do we solve the problem of itching ears? Well, the solution is very simple. We need to desire the sincere milk of the word that we may grow thereby. We want to eat the things that are healthy. Uh, okay? Even you know today, the healthy food may not be the nicest food, right? Uh, children, I think maybe only a few of the children, uh, I know Paul's children eat love vegetables. I uh, don't know whether they still like them. But they train them well to love vegetables. Uh, most of the children, I can imagine, even adults, uh, we don't really like vegetables, right? Because so bland, not nice to eat. Sometimes medicine that is good for us, we also don't like to eat. Uh. But we need to take that because it's good for us. Spiritually speaking, again, sometimes doctrine that is good for us, doctrine that is pure, may not be the easiest thing to, to, to talk about. Uh. For example, you talk about marriage, divorce, remarriage. It's a very sensitive topic. Sometimes people say that, I am a divorce, can I remarry? To them, it can cause a lot of hurt, a lot of uh, pain when you talk about the consequences. But such is good things because God has given us the things that will make us holy. Okay? So we need to take the sincere meat of the word so that we can grow, so that we can be spiritually matured, so that we can be saved. And so the first thing we talk about deviant doctrine is those who practice, uh, the, the first thing we talk about vain religion is those who practice deviant doctrine. Secondly, that of fruitless faith. Fruitless faith results in a vain religion. In James 2 verse 20, James says, Will thou know, O vain man, that faith without works is dead? Notice, faith without works is dead. And James says, it's vain. Those who practice that are practicing vanity. So, fruitless faith 
makes for vain religion. Again, we may ask the question, what is a foolish faith? Simply put, foolish faith is faith that is unproductive. The person has faith, but the faith does not lead him to do things for God. It does not help him to be fruitful in God's kingdom. Again, we want to look at two examples of a fuller's faith. First, James gives an example of those who are apathetic, who are indifferent to others. Okay. So James 2, verse 15 and 16, James gives a scenario. If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of you say unto them, Depart in peace, be warmed and filled, notwithstanding, you give them not those things which are needful to the body, what doth it profit? So today, if a brother or sister has need, he say, I haven't eaten food, huh? I'm very hungry, uh, I, I, need to, I need to eat. And you tell them, uh, uh, I'll pray for you, hope that you get something to eat. Does it help? It doesn't. Uh. Today, someone says, I want to hear the gospel. Uh, can you share with me the gospel? You tell them, oh, I'm very busy, but I'll pray for your salvation. Does it help? It doesn't help. So again, the Bible talks about apathetic believers. It's talking about people who are Christians, but yet they don't put their faith into action. The Bible tells us that we are created in Christ Jesus for good works. Ephesians 2 verse 10. But if we don't, if we are uh, believers that don't put into practice what we, we are supposed to do, then that becomes like salt without flavor. Okay, the Bible talks about salt without that lost its flavor is to be cast out and trodden under the feet of men. Okay, so apathetic believers are those that practice very religion because that faith does not produce fruits. James also gives us another interesting example. Okay, he talks about unrepentant demons. In fact, if faith alone can save people, it will save the demons. Because do the demons believe in God? Well, they do. In James chapter 2 verse 19, James says, Thou believers, there is one God, thou doest well. The devils also believe and tremble. In fact, the devils up us one level. Not only do they believe, they believe so much that they actually tremble. But are demons safe? The problem is they are not safe. Why? Because they continue to do evil. They are not repentant. So their belief, their faith cannot save them if they continue in doing evil. Again, we look at what will happen to these group, two groups. For those who are apathetic believers, what will happen? On the day of judgment, there will be a punishment that, that awaits those who do not practice their faith. In fact, Matthew chapter 25 is an interesting chapter. Matthew 25 is the judgment scene from verse 31 onwards. It shows us how God will separate the sheep on the right, the sheep on the right and the goats on the left. And those on the right are those who are safe. Those who are on the left are those who will be sentenced to punishment in eternal hellfire. But notice, those that are sentenced to punishment, what was it that they have done wrong? Did they teach deviant doctrine? Nothing mentioned about that. Did they do any sin? Nothing about that. But what they were guilty of is a faith without works. Because Matthew 25, verse 42 to verse 45, Jesus says, For I was hungered, you give me no meat. I was thirsty, you give me no drink. I was a stranger, you took me not in. Naked, and you clothed me not. Sick, and in prison, and you visited me not. And these people will ask Jesus, When did we not do this unto you? But Jesus will reply them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as you did it not to one of the least of these, you did it not unto me. So these people will lose their salvation because of the lack of practice of their faith. Your people will believe, isn't that? They believe in Jesus, but yet they are lost because they have not been productive in God's kingdom. How about our demons? What would their fate be? They will be destined for torment in the eternal abyss. In fact, in Luke chapter 8, we see an interesting account of a man who was possessed with a demon. 
And Luke chapter 8, verse 28 tells us when this demon possessed man saw Jesus, he cried out, he fell down before him with a loud voice, he said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, the Son of the Most High? Did the demon believe in Jesus? Yes, he did. He called Jesus the Son of the Most High. In fact, the demons know full well who Jesus is. They knew that he's the Son of God. But they also tell Jesus, I beseech you, torment me not. They know that they will be punished, but yet they refuse to change their ways. In fact, Jesus asked them, what is the name? They call themselves legion because there are many. They have possessed this man. But notice that they, even though they are faced with the Son of God, they still want to do mischief. Okay? In verse 31, they besought Jesus not to cast them out into the deep. Or the King James translation says, Abyss. Okay? This is a place that we know uh, is called, called Tartarus. In the realm of Hades, the realm of the dead, this divided into two parts. Paradise are those who are saved that we go there. Tartarus is the place where those who are lost will be punished there. So the demons did not want to be sentenced to this place to suffer torment. They asked Jesus not to command them to go there. But what did they ask Jesus to do? Cast us into the swine, uh, cast us into pigs. Uh. But you know what they did after they, Jesus cast them into pigs? They run the, 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 the pigs down the cliff and drown the pigs. Uh. So they were still not doing good works. Uh. They still want to do mischief. Even though they know that they are done wrong, they know that they are come before the Son of God, but yet they were inclined to do mischief. And so demons, even though they believe, they are not saved because they continue to do evil. Again, let's look at what the Bible says about such a faith. A faith that does not produce fruit. In fact, the Bible calls it a dead faith in James chapter 2, verse 26. And such a faith cannot save. In fact, the Bible will give us two contrasting examples about faith that saves. And notice that this faith is coupled with the works that they do. It's antithetical. A dead faith is antithetical to that of Abraham because Abraham is called the father of faith. But why is he called the father of faith? Is it because he just believed? Not so. In fact, James 2 verse 21 will tell us, Was not Abraham our father justified by works? When? Notice he says, When he had offered Isaac his son upon the altar. So Abraham was justified by faith because he put his faith into action. And this faith resulted in works that justified him. In fact, you notice that even before Abraham offered his son, he already believed God. In fact, when the, when the son asked him in Genesis 22 verse 8, where is the lamb? Abraham told the son, the Lord will provide a lamb for the offering. Abraham trusted God. But Abraham still had to do what God says. God didn't say, okay, you believe me, it's good, everything good, that's it, uh, settle, now I will bless you. God still wanted him to offer the son to show his obedience. But of course, God prevented that. God provided a ram for the burnt offering. And in verse 17 of Genesis, or verse 16 of Genesis 22, uh, notice what God said. By myself have I sworn, said the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing, and had not withhold thy son, thy only son. So God says, I will bless you, because you have not withhold thy son. Abraham did what God commanded, and that's why he was blessed. It's not just he believed he was blessed, it's only when he did God's will. And verse 18 he says, In your seed shall all nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Again, the reason why God blessed him is because Abraham had obeyed. If Abraham had just said, I believe God, but I'm not going to do it, uh, will he be blessed? Will he be commended? Definitely not. Well, now let's look at another example. Okay. We've talked about the father of faith, Abraham. Now we look at a sinful harlot, uh, Rahab. Rahab will be, some, will be someone that people despise and look down upon. Okay. In fact, if people talk about those who they expect to see saved, uh, probably Rahab will be ranking very low on the list uh, because she's a harlot. 
Okay? And people think of her as an unclean woman. But the Bible says, likewise also was not Rahab the harlot justified by works. How was she justified? When she received the messengers and sent them out another way. Notice Rahab was justified not when she believed. Uh, it was when she did God's will. When she saved the Israelite spies. In fact, Rahab all along had believed in God. Because if you look in Joshua chapter 2, verse 9, why did she hide the spies? Because she says, I know the Lord has given you this land. So she believed. The God says, okay, at this point in time, you are already safe. You believe only you are safe. Well, not so. Because we see in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, we see that Joshua and the people saved her alive because she hid the messengers that they sent. So she had to do something to show forth her faith. And by then, she will be justified by her works. So we see that a faith that does not result in works is not the kind of faith that God desires. God wants us to have faith that demonstrates itself in His works. Again, we talk about what are the consequences of a dead faith. What is so severe? What is so serious about having a dead faith? The first thing is that a dead faith cannot save. No matter how much you say, I believe in God, uh, you don't do anything, you will not save. Uh. Okay? Just like if you go and see a doctor, you are sick, uh, you see a doctor. The doctor tells you that you have to do something. You have to change your lifestyle, you have to take medicine. You tell the doctor, doctor, I really believe you. Uh, but you don't change your lifestyle, you don't go and, go and uh, change your diet, you don't go and take the medicine. Will you be cured? Of course not. Uh. You can believe all you want. You can have a lot of great faith. But it will not help you. You have to do what the doctor tells you to do. So same thing. If someone has great faith, but they don't practice it, there is no salvation. In fact, James will ask a rhetorical question. What does it profit, my brethren? Do a man say he had faith and had not works? Can faith save him? From the structure of this verse, we know that the answer, of course, is no. Okay? Is there a profit if there is faith but no works? No. Can faith save him? Of course, the answer is no. Faith alone can't save a person. In fact, you notice that the word faith only is found in John, in James chapter 2, verse 24. This is the only verse that talks about faith only. And what does it say about faith only? You see then how a man is justified, how then by works a man is justified and not by faith only. So the Bible says that justification is not by faith only, but it's through works. So when the Bible talks about faith, it's talking about active, obedient faith. It's not a faith that says, I believe in God, but I go back to doing a life of sin. I believe in God, but I'm not going to keep His commandments. I'm not going to worship Him. I'm not going to pray to Him. That is not the kind of faith the Bible talks about. But the Bible requirement of faith is an active, obedient faith. And so, brother, we ask the question again. Are we guilty? Are we guilty of having a fullest faith? A faith that only profess much love. Ezekiel 33 verse 31, notice that the Israelites were condemned. Why? Because they will come to Isaiah as the people come, they will sit before Isaiah as the people, they will hear the words of God, but they will not do them. Notice these people have faith, they have faith such that they come, but yet they don't put it into practice. And the Bible says, with their mouth they so show much love, but their heart grave after their covetousness. So lip service is not something that God wants. If you tell people that I'm a Christian, I love God, well, we need to show forth our love. Today, when we sing the hymn, I want to be a worker of the Lord. Do we, are we really workers of the Lord? People ask, brother, can you help, or sister, can you help in this ministry? Can you help in this work? Or oh, sorry, I'm very busy, uh, don't find me. Uh, when we think about, not send me, uh, but yet, when people ask you, can you teach a class? Can you help to teach this visitor? Uh, sorry, uh, send someone, don't send me. Uh. You are guilty of practicing deep service. This is a fruitless faith. So are we guilty of professing our love for God, but yet this love is not shown in works? 
How then can we solve the problem of a fruitless faith? How then can we be sincere in our faith? Well, the Bible tells us that we are to not just love in word or tongue, not just by what we say, but in deed and truth. Today you tell your spouse that you love your spouse, uh, but yet you never help your spouse with any work, any housework, you don't do things for them, you don't serve them. Is that love? Well, your, your spouse will tell you that is just deep service. You just say for the sake of saying it. But it's through our actions that we demonstrate our love. In the same way, it's through what we do for God that shows that we love Him. So we have seen two kinds of vain religion, two characteristics. One is that of a fruitless faith, and then we talk about those who practice or teach deviant doctrine. The third kind is a pretended piety. Earlier we talked about deviant doctrine. People who teach things that are wrong. Well, you can teach the right thing, but yet not do that. That will be a fuller's faith. And now we talk about you can do the right thing, you can teach the right thing, but yet still be practicing vain religion. How? When we practice pretended piety. In James 1 verse 26, James says, If any man among you seems to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this man's religion is vain. So this someone can seem to be religious, huh? but yet can be practicing vain religion. Okay. In fact, the New King James Version says, thinks himself to be religious. Huh? So not just seem to be religious. I think myself that I'm religious, but yet I can be practicing vain religion. So pretended piety is, some, uh, uh, is a piety that is insincere. Okay. That means I do things, I teach things, but it's not of the right heart. And again, that makes for vain religion. Well, we know that we need to teach the truth. We talk about deviant doctrine, and not to teach deviant doctrine, we need to teach the truth. But in teaching the truth, are we guilty of being self-righteous? Okay. In fact, in James chapter 4, verse 11, James says, Speak not evil one of another, brethren. He that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother, speaketh evil of the law and judges the law. If thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. So sometimes people judge other people. They judge the intentions of people, the actions of people. But Jesus says, judge not according to the appearance, but judge righteous judgment. So we can teach the right thing. But sometimes we are tempted to be self-righteous. I teach others and then I make myself to feel good about myself. Again, that will be a pretended piety. That is not doing it out of the pureness of the heart. Another example of a pretended piety is that of being a respecter of persons. You help to serve, you do things for people, but you choose and pick and choose who you want to serve. And James gave us the example. In James chapter 2, verse 1, James says, My brethren, have not the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, with respect to persons. And James will go on to give an example of a brother that comes in dressed very nicely. And you tell him, sit in this upper place. But the brother that comes in that dressed shabbily, doesn't look well off. You say, sit at my foot too. So that's, again, a pretended piety. You do things based on who you see and judging based on people of how they dress. And verse 9, James will tell us that if we have respect to persons, we commit sin, we are convinced of the law as transgressors. So even though we are to be doers of the work, because we talk about the need not to have a fullness faith, we need to make sure that we are not respectful of persons in showing partiality. And the Bible speaks of such a piety, a pretended piety, as one that has a form of godliness. It has a form. It's not really godly, but it pretends to be godly. And that's what we see in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. And what are the characteristics of people who show a form of, of godliness? Well, one characteristic is that the people will be a lover of themselves. Uh. 
Second Timothy 3 verse 2 says that men shall be lovers of their own selves. The one that has a pretended piety uh, is a lover of self. Why? They are self-righteous because they want to feel good about themselves. The reason why they judge others is so that they can show that they are better than others. And that is an uh, identifying mark of a pretended piety. Not only that, they are despisers of those that are good as well. A lot of times people who have pretended piety don't really like people who are doing good. Uh. Why? Because their honour is taken away. Others are doing more than them, others get praises. Or it could be that people who are doing good, people will tell them where they have done wrong. And they don't like to hear that. They like to hear people who tell them that they are doing good. And so they will show preferential treatment, partiality to those who they, who they who they please them, who tell them what they like to hear. But people who tell them the truth that hurts them, they do not like that. They prefer to hear the sweet lies than to hear the painful truths. So that will be a sign of pretended piety. Again, what is so bad about pretended piety? What are its consequences? Well, firstly, we see that pretended piety does not produce the righteousness of God. It is not God's righteousness because it is mostly self-righteousness. And so James will tell his readers, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, and slow to wrath. For the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. A lot of times people who are self-righteous, sometimes they are also very sensitive. They get very angry very easily. But the Bible says that the wrath of man does not work God's righteousness. So our piety must be based on what God tells us. It must be righteous anger rather than angry because for, for not the just cause. And notice that such a religion also involves self-deception. Okay. Again, when you look at James 1.26, he says, If anyone among you seem to be religious and bridleth not his tongue, but deceiveth his own heart. Notice, the person is deceiving himself. I pretend, I think myself that I'm religious, but yet it's not because of the right motivation. The Bible says, you are deceiving your own heart. It is self-deception. And he says, you bluff yourself, make yourself happy only. But it doesn't really help. And so brethren, let us ask the question, are we guilty of pretended piety? When we try to justify ourselves before men? When we do things, is it for others to see? Is it for others to praise us? Do I come to church only because I'm scared that if I don't come, uh, brother so and so will call me up? Or is it because I'm here because I want to worship God? Well, what then is the cure for pretended piety? We need to seek the honour that comes from God alone. Okay? Don't seek man's honour, seek God's honour. And in so doing, then we'll be doing what is right and pleasing before God. And so brethren, in this morning's sermon, we have discussed about what constitutes vain religion and the repercussions of vain religion. We spoke about vain religion is characterized by deviant doctrine. And the Bible calls it the doctrine of devils. And what will happen is that this rejects God's commandment. And it will be a case of the blind leading the blind. There is no good outcome for them. We spoke about the fullest faith. And the Bible calls it a dead faith. What's the problem with a dead faith? A dead faith cannot save. A dead faith cannot justify us. Cannot make us just before God. And we spoke about a pretended piety. The Bible calls it having a form of godliness. It's a show, it's a pretense. But such a piety does not produce God's righteousness. It's based on self-righteousness and God, God's righteousness. And the Bible says that it is self-deception. I deceive myself because it's not doing it for God, but for self. In the time of Malachi, you see the Jews proclaim that it is vain to serve God. In Malachi 3 verse 14, they say, what value is it to serve God? It's futile to serve God. But you know what the problem is? 
The problem is that they were engaged in vain religion. The three things we spoke about, they were guilty of all three. And when you practice vain religion, you will find that serving God is in vain. Because you will not find blessings, you will not find fulfillment in serving God if it's done out of vain religion. They were guilty of deviant doctrine. They corrupted the covenant of Levi. The priests do not teach God's law. They practice a corrupted version of God's law. They practice a fullness faith. God was there, institute. He's the one of those that made a covenant. Uh, in the marriage covenant, God is part of this covenant. But yet, we see that God says that they have dealt treacherously with their wives. They take the foreign wives and they put away their own wives. They divorce them. They are not putting their faith into action. So they were guilty of a fullness faith. And they are pretended piety. They come to worship God, they sacrifice to God. But it was not God what God pleased. They were giving God what they do not want. They were giving God a corrupt thing. Those who are lame, those who are blind, they give God these things. And then they dare to say that it is vain to serve God. It is vain if we only practice vain religion. But if we practice true religion, pure religion, then it is not in vain. Because 1 Corinthians 58 will tell us that, uh, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, uh, sorry, let me just read the verse, suddenly still my mind. 1 Corinthians 15 verse 58, <clears throat> it says here, Therefore, my believer, brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, because we know that our labor is not in vain in the Lord. So if we do, if we serve God out of a pure heart, then our religion will not be in vain. But we may ask then, what is a pure religion? We are talking about a vain religion, what are the things that don't please God? But yet, I have not spoken about what is a religion that pleases God. Well, the Bible tells us what is pure religion. <coughs> pure religion is to visit the fatherless and the widows in their affliction. That is pure religion. Because remember the two greatest commandments? The second commandment is love your neighbor as yourself. If you visit the fatherless and the widows, what can they do for you? Probably nothing much. Those They have nothing to offer to you, they have nothing to give you. So when you visit them, it's really out of the purity of the heart. And the Bible says that is pure religion, where we love our neighbor. <coughs> and the next part of the verse says, to keep himself unspotted from the world. Holiness. That also is a form of loving God. The two greatest commandments, to love God and to love your neighbor. But how do we love God? Jesus says, if you love me, keep my commandments. So when we keep our commandments and we keep ourselves holy, unspotted from the world, then we love God. So pure religious people is to visit the fatherless and the widows in affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. In doing so, we obey the two greatest commandments, to love God, and to love our neighbor. And so brethren, what is our religion like? Is it a vain religion or is it a pure religion? Well, if you are doing a, if you have a pure religion, are we doing the will of God from the heart? Notice, if we do, then we are not practicing a fuller faith. If we do the will of God, then we are not practicing deviant doctrine because it's God's will. If we do the will of God from the heart, then it will not be pretended piety because it comes from the heart. So let us remember, when you do God's will, do it from the heart. And make sure it's not doing man's doctrine, but God's will. <coughs> and to the friends that are among us, have you obeyed the form of doctrine that was delivered to you? Have you obeyed what God wants you to do to be saved? So give me a second. Again, we talked about the importance of the three things we discussed. First, you have to obey. If you don't obey, you just believe and you come and hear, but there's no action. It's a foolish face, isn't it? I say, I know what God wants me to do, but
but yet I don't obey his will, I don't do what he wants. It becomes a foolish faith. So Paul says that we have to obey. But what do we obey? Sorry, we are, what do, how do we obey? We obey from the heart. You do it not because people pressure you, not because you want to please people, but we do it from the heart because we want to obey God. Then we will not be guilty of pretended piety. And we must obey from the heart the form of doctrine, or some traditions say the pattern of doctrine, the doctrine that the apostles of God has delivered. So this is not man's doctrine, but God's doctrine. So in doing so, we will not be guilty of deviant doctrine. Have you obeyed the form of doctrine that the apostles have delivered? You may ask the question, what do I need to obey? What is this doctrine that I need to obey? <coughs> well, God's word has shown to us what we need to do to be saved. God has done the difficult part. He sent his son to die for us. Christ died for us. And the Holy Spirit has revealed to us what Christ has done and what we need to do to appropriate the blood of Christ. Our part is very simple. As revealed in the Bible, we need to hear the gospel, the message of salvation, and we need to believe the gospel. But belief alone doesn't save. We are talking about fullest faith. If you believe and stop there, it doesn't help. You have to do God's will. This means that we need to repent of our sins. The things that we have done wrong in the past, we need to make correction. We need to confess Jesus before men and then to be baptized so that we can have our sins forgiven to wash away our sins. Notice, baptism wash away sins. If we are not baptized in the right manner, our sins are not forgiven. We will not be a right relationship with God. And of course, thereafter, we need to remain faithful so that we can be able to receive the crown of life. If any one of you is subject to the invitation call and you like to make yourself right with God, you like to obey the gospel, why not make your intentions known as you stand and sing the hymn of invitation and encouragement? Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let His praises ring. Glory in the highest I will shout and sing Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Saviour Standing, standing I'm standing on the promises of God Standing on the promises that cannot fail When the howling storm of doubt and fear still By the living word of God I shall prevail Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Saviour Standing on the promises of God Standing on the promises of Christ the Lord Bound to Him eternally by love's strong heart Overcoming daily with the Spirit's sword Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Saviour, standing, standing, I'm standing on the promises of God.